We study billionaires, and this is episode 37 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And uh, today, we've got a really good book that we're going to be discussing. Uh, the name of the book was Hedge Fund Market Wizards by Jack Schwager. And for anybody that knows uh, Jack Schwager in the investing community, he he's one of the best writers out there. Uh, and the reason that we really like Jack Schwager so much is because he just asks such intelligent questions. When you're going through the book and you're reading some of his initial questions, they're pretty generic, but then he really gets into the meat and potatoes of everyone's investing approach. And I think that because he has such a firm understanding of investing himself, he's able to ask some of these really intelligent questions. So he's able to extract some knowledge out of these just top level performers, these guys that are managing just billions of dollars. And it's a really awesome opportunity to just kind of step into their world and really kind of be able to extract those key elements. Without further ado, Stig and I have got this episode laid out into two different segments. The first segment, we're going to be talking about the top themes that we were able to pull from the book. And then in the second part of the episode, we're going to go ahead and just highlight a few of the hedge fund managers that we found to be the most interesting or that had probably the best results. So what's really fascinating in the book is that Jack Schwager goes through 15 people were interviewed in this book. Each one of them either managed a billion dollar kind of portfolio or they're billionaires themselves. Like Ray Dalio is one of the people in the book. Ray Dalio's personal net worth is 16 billion. So you got some high net wealth people that were interviewed in this book. And it was just amazing to see how he kind of that. I, I think the most amazing thing for me was the difference in all of their different approaches. Uh, that's the thing that was really quite fascinating. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to highlight the things that we found that were common amongst all the different people that he highlighted in the book, because I think that's what gives people probably the best tools that they could implement into their own strategy. Because if every one of these guys is doing the same thing, or at least one of these same elements, you probably need to be thinking about that in your approach as well. So the first theme that we're going to talk about uh, that we saw amongst all 15 of these people was the idea of asymmetrical trades. So what this is, is that these gentlemen are not going to take on a trade. Um, and and I, I'm going to be using the word trade instead of investing, uh, just because there was a lot of people in this book that had a short-term approach to the way that they were making money in the market, which flies completely in the face of the way that Warren Buffett invests. And that's how Stig and I uh, talk about our investing so, and just so you know, that's still how we look at things. We really haven't changed our approach to investing, but we want to highlight this idea of this asymmetrical trades because these gentlemen don't take on a position in a stock, a bond, an option, unless they feel that they have an enormous upside versus a very small and minimal downside. And that's what he means by taking on an asymmetrical trade. And we saw this amongst each person was, hey, my upside is 60% and my downside is probably 2% or really small and minimal. Um, because of that, you saw a lot of people in this book that really didn't take on a lot of short selling for a long-term strategy. Now, they talked a lot about short selling. Don't get me wrong. But in general, uh, a lot of the people did not like to short sell because they, they limit their upside with that. Um, they they want to be on the option of that. Whenever they want to short sell, they typically went into the options arena because they would have a much larger upside versus the downside. Uh, go ahead, Stick. I see you have a point on that. Yeah. And one of the things that I really noticed was that Swagger, whenever he was interviewing people, he wanted to talk about the fantastic returns that they were getting. But you know, all I guess, as far as I read it, they wanted to talk about how they were limiting their downside. And I actually thought that was that was quite interesting because they weren't too much about, yeah, I had 20% last year or 25%. That wasn't that important. It was more about risk management. Um, so I just think that, especially in the times they're in right now, is something that's really profound for me when I um, hear about this, these uh, successful investors. On that point, Stig, I found it really cool that most of these guys wanted to talk about their losses. They wanted to talk about their bad years or like, 
these really bad experiences. A lot they almost always gravitated towards that in these interviews. And what I also found interesting is when you track back to the start that most of all these gentlemen had, it almost always started because they had a really bad experience. Uh, yeah. Like they had, uh, they started off, they had some maybe big returns up like the first year or something like that. And then they just got slaughtered in the market, like lost half or like 75% of their entire net worth. And then they were able to adjust their investing style and they were able to basically take it on a whole different course from that point. Yeah. And, and on that note, I think that's one of the uh, common denominators were that they would keep updating themselves. They would keep learning. And that, I think that was why they were talking uh, so much about their own mistakes. And that was also something Redelli was talking about, that he was really learning from his mistakes. And uh, at the very beginning, I know we would talk more about Redelio, but he said that in the very beginning, he was writing down his mistakes and how he did it. But he also soon figured out that he didn't have time enough to do all the mistakes in the world. <laughs> that was simply too slow of a, an approach. So he had to do something different to capture all the mistakes. But he kept talking about his, his mistakes, which, you know, I, I'm thinking if I'm Redalio and I'm worth like $18 billion, I would probably more be talking about how successful I am and why I'm successful. But he didn't do that. And it was the same thing for all the uh, people in the book. They kept talking about the failures and how they learned from that mistake. And I just thought that was really profound. Well, okay. So that's the first point is asymmetrical trades and how they're always trying to look for those big opportunities. Um, The next one that we're going to talk about is whether you're right or you're wrong and that it really doesn't matter. All that it matters is whether you're actually able to beat the market. And so this idea was something that you saw a lot of gentlemen in this book talk about. And I completely agree with it because you can have the best theory in the world. You can have, um, let me give you an example. So Stig and I really enjoy accounting and people that have this accounting background um, typically like to go in and determine what they think the value of a company is. That's the really kind of the essence of the Warren Buffett approach. And so we're very quantitative people. We, we like to get in there. We like to see what we think the cash flow is going to be. Then we discount those back to the present day value. And we come up with this value that we think that the company is worth. And so let's say we come to uh, the determination that we think the company is worth $70 uh, at a certain discount rate. And it's currently trading on the market for $50. So we think that the company might be undervalued by $20. So... It doesn't matter whether we're right or wrong. It matters whether we hold that position long enough that it actually becomes worth $70. That's the difference between being right and wrong and being able to make money in the market. And that's what these gentlemen were all saying in the book is you can have the best philosophy in the world, but if you can't stand by it until you actually get results, um, you're probably going to not last very long in being a stock investor. So I, I really like that point because it is so true and you, you see a lot of academics specifically, and I don't mean the bash at the academic world, but you see a lot of academics that come up with all these great theories. But you know what? If you don't know how to impl- apply it in the real world so that you can actually make money, the, the theory is worthless in, in application. Okay, so moving on to the next theme that we had, um, this is one that uh, we've been saying probably a lot on the show. So we're going to probably breeze over this pretty quickly. But something that we saw that was really uh, interesting amongst all these different traders was the fact that they are using a strategy that works for them. Uh, When you looked at each person, each person had a different approach and each person had results to back up that their approach works. Like there's no disputing that what they're doing is a successful way to invest. So for me, it was just a really good representation that you're seeing in the book. You're seeing, hey, this guy's successful, the next guy's successful, and they're implementing strategies that are just so different. And you look at their personalities, like the one guy they talked about his personality where he's like yelling on the phone and he like smashed, I don't know, 25 phones or something like that. So his personality is just really rambunctious. But when you look at a guy like Warren Buffett, it's completely different. Now, I'm sure Buffett's returns are infinitely better than this other gentleman that I'm that I'm referring to. But the fact of the matter is, is is this guy was successful. He was a successful trader. Now, you might not agree with his approach and the way that he he acts in the office, but you can't dispute the fact that the guy is not implementing a strategy that beats the market. 
And so his personality, and my whole point in saying this is his personality is completely different than another person's personality, which is different than the next person. And so you have to kind of match your personality with your investing approach. And something that I liked about the book is you can look at these different gentlemen say, hey, I'm a lot like this guy. That's that's kind of the way I see the world. And maybe you can dig into his approach a little bit more. So that's probably uh, the part that I think is good for maybe an early investor as they'd be reading this. So, um, you know, I was really excited reading this book and uh, how it happened was actually that Preston sent me an email that he would really eat this book up. And so, you know, I was really excited about it. And then I saw it was like 16 hours because you know, I'm, I'm listening to all my books and I just thought, oh no, 16 hours, that, that's a long time. But I think it was the, in my opinion, it was almost like the shortest book I ever read because it was so good. <laughs> like I had to cancel appointments and everything. And I, this was just a fantastic book. You know, I was just eating it up. But the funny thing is that there was like 15 people and I probably say I could implement strategies from one of them, one and a half perhaps. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of the strategies that they were, you know, talking about, even though that Swigger had, a, you know, did a great job about making it more simple and detailed, you know, I, I do consider myself a somewhat intelligent person, but I had no clue how they did it. Like they were talking about how they were trading all of these options and how they were trading volatilities. And I don't know. I don't know. What about you, Preston? Did, what, were you thinking like, yeah, this is so obvious why I should be doing that. Or is it just me? I got the exact same impression from this book. So I'm reading it and it's just like, I'm like, wow, like, really is that this is really how this guy is doing it like it, there was times there was a few people in there i was like there is no way that strategy could last over the long term and then he'd be like and so he's been doing this for 25 years <laughs> you're just like what <laughs> but uh yeah no i i love the book because it really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there are people out there that can do some crazy stuff and still be successful in their approach um, I think if you would have told me that somebody had some of these different approaches, I would have said there is no way that will last over the long term. And so I'm obviously wrong because there's proof in, in their performance. But um, I'm, I'm right there with you, Stig. There was maybe a couple, two, maybe three people that I'd say, yeah, I think that that's probably something that I could implement into my own approach. Um, but don't take that as... Uh, you know, you should avoid reading the book altogether because what I really liked about the book was that it really challenged a lot of my own ideas. And I love that. I, I really like when that happens because that's where, you know, you're able to uncover truth in your own life and your own approach. And that's what I really liked about it. Yeah. And, and just another point on that, because I was thinking with myself, who would I invest with if I had to invest with some of those, uh, some of these uh, people here? And I, I got to say, you know, someone like Greenblatt a lot, like his work, and and someone like um, like Redalio really impressed me. Uh, I I knew them a lot beforehand, but I don't think I would be comfortable investing with some of the other guys, even though they've been you know beating the market for like twenty years. Because basically, I don't understand what they're doing and how it works. Like it does. Like you have someone saying, I think it was Larry Benedict who said, yeah. So whenever the market has dropped three days, I would usually go long, because that's just my experience that it will go. It makes sense to do that. And I really don't want to give that guy my money, right? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Come on. Would- <laughs> <laughs> no, I felt the same way, man. I was like, he's like, really? Like, are these guys, I wouldn't even be comfortable saying something like that, even if I did believe it, you know? And I mean, it's in the book. These guys are saying this, some of this stuff. And I just, you know, I liked it though. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading some of these stories because they were, uh, <laughs> They were very surprising. I think some of them were really surprising. All right. So this this next point is one that I really want to talk about because I think this is very important. Uh, so one of the gentlemen, I forget which one it was. There's three different ways to beat the market. Okay. You can pick stocks better. That's one way. So th- that would really kind of go into maybe the Warren Buffett approach. He's he's the master of picking the stocks that are better than the other ones on the market. Um, that's why he outperforms it. Uh, the next one, uh, the next approach is that you can time the market better. And I think everybody, uh, t- if you tell somebody that you know when the market's going to hit a top or a bottom, how much do you believe that person, Stig? I don't know. Do you think people believe us when you say the market is overvalued? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a difference in saying that you feel like the market's becoming overvalued and you're calling a top or a bottom. Okay. Yeah, I and, agree with you. 
And so I think that if you have a person that tells you, hey, we are at the top, baby, you need to sell. I think you need to run away from that person as far as you can get. Um, And so if you're trying to pick stocks better than the other person, I think that that's hard to do. I think it can be done, but I think it's hard to do. If you're trying to time the market, I think that's almost impossible to do. Okay. And so then the third approach is you can adjust your exposure at a better point in time. And so if you're looking at those three different options, the first two are extremely difficult to do. The third one, I think, is a lot easier to do where you are, again, limiting your downside. And so when you look at all these gentlemen, the one thing that they really had in common was they were adjusting their exposure whenever they felt like they were in risky times or high overvalued times. And because they were adjusting that exposure into something that was much safer, that would protect their principal, they were able to really circumnavigate all these financial storms uh, like 2008, a lot of these guys were in in the green in 2008, 2009. And I think a lot of that had to do with they were not in a position where they were um, trying to get their money out after the market had already gone down 25%. They, were, they had adjusted their exposure to equities or whatever the, the big risk at the time was. And they were in a position that they were going to just basically protect their principal during those those periods of time. And I think that is a huge learning point that uh, people can really take away from this book. So the next point that we have kind of goes hand in hand with that one. And that's that these these gentlemen were always preparing themselves for the black swan. Um, I know we've mentioned that book a few times. And, and to be honest with you, Stig and I have that on our list to go through an entire review of the black swan because that was one of Jeff Bezos's favorite books. That was uh, I think Michael Bloomberg also subscribes to the lessons in that book. But anyway, these gentlemen were always prepared for that one big event that they could not predict. And if that event did hit, they were not going to lose 50% of their net worth. They were only going to lose a very small percentage of their net worth if that black swan would come along. So I found that to be a very important point for uh, people that are really have focused portfolios. You know, Warren Buffett talks huge about having a focused portfolio. But at the same time, uh, Warren Buffett also has, what is it, 70 uh, operational subsidiaries, and I don't even know how many non-operational subsidiaries. So he's diversified. Like, Don't think for a second that he's not diversified. But the, the real point here is you've got to be prepared. If Let's say half of your portfolio is in one particular pick. Uh, we don't see that amongst any of these people. They do not have that much focus. They have maybe 10%, you know, maybe 15% at most. Uh, And when you're doing that, you're protecting yourself from that big catastrophic event that could wipe you out. Okay, so the last thing that we're going to talk about is this idea of the efficient market hypothesis. So everybody that's a Warren Buffett fan knows how much he dislikes the efficient market hypothesis. And you know what? We found that same theme amongst every single person in this book. Uh, for anybody who's not familiar with the efficient market hypothesis, the idea is is quite simple. Is just that at any given point in time, the market is properly uh, valued. Uh, so right now, uh, wherever this, the Dow Jones or the S&P 500, whatever metric you want to use for the, the equity market in the United States, these people in academia is pretty much where all these people live. So all of Stig's people... I'm just <laughs> Thank you very much, Preston. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> I have nothing against academia. I, I truly value what they do. Um, but this is one of those things that I think a lot of people that you see a lot of conflict between the people that are in application mode, sitting on Wall Street, running these big companies that are making large amounts of money. They go toe to toe with all of academia that believes that the efficient market hypothesis is real and actually works. So Stig, I know you got some points on this. (laughs) Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. 
Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I got to give a shout out to Moe Professor because you know, he taught everybody, including me, of course, that we have to believe in the efficient market hypothesis. And every time we, uh, we talked about this, he always ended his sentences with this. Investment bankers buy, um, drive Ferrari and I drive a Kia. <laughs> but I just want to say that the market is efficient. And, and I think that was his strong belief that uh, you know, he could observe that a lot of people were in the stock market was richer than he was. But he just really felt that there was nothing as well proven as the efficient market hypothesis. So it's it's kind of contradictory, and I remember back in the, back when the when the market crashed back in two thousand and eight. You know, we were still told that it was because the market was efficient, and I, it just didn't make any sense to me. How can you cut the market in half and say it was b- efficient before and efficient after? It just doesn't make sense to me. No, I think even the academia. I mean, they tell you that, but like your like your professor said, and that's why I drive it. So he he knows that the model kind of works. <laughs> I think that's the best. And I think we talked about this in a previous episode where um, maybe it was Jim Rickards or I forget whether maybe we even read it in this book. I don't remember where I read it, but. Somebody was talking about the reason that academia uses this model is because it's the only model that they can apply mathematics to. So if you get into something that has an uneven distribution, the 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 mathematics on everything just kind of breaks down. And so how are you going to teach that as a professor when you're trying to teach your students the different models? If they can't back it up with mathematics, well, you know, that doesn't that doesn't work. So you kind of have to subscribe to this efficient market hypothesis in academia because you got to be able to do the mathematical models and, and grade the homework assignments, I guess. Yeah, and we had one of the investors in the book. He was, uh, you know, he was being tested in the efficient market hypothesis uh, when he was back in college, and he refused to give the right answers. So he was actually, it was just hilarious. He was putting a note on the uh, on the uh, front page of his test, and he was saying, "I don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis, and this is why." And uh, and of course, he, you know, he failed the course. But, you know, I, I just really like that. I would have failed him. <laughs> you would have failed him, yeah. No, I wouldn't have. All right. So uh, let's talk about, well, there's a really, really good example in this book that I absolutely love that just smashes this efficient market hypothesis with a hammer. This is this uh, gentleman, Edward Thorpe is his name. 
And so Edward Thorpe, for anybody who knows who Edward Thorpe is, he wrote a book called Beat the Dealer. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more uh, later on. Uh, But um, Edward Thorpe has beaten the market 227 months. He has 227 winning months out of 230 months of trading. Um, And so if we were going to use a binary, um, let's just say true or false kind of uh, prediction, is he going to beat the market or is he not going to beat the market in this particular month? And you got 220. So if we were going to turn that into like a heads or tails flip of the coin, if you were going to flip a coin 230 times and it landed on heads 227 times. Um, you would either think there's something wrong with that coin or there's something else going on here because uh, in order for that to happen, it's a 1 times 10 to the 63rd power chance that you would actually do that. So for anybody that's a numbers person, you know the probability is pretty much impossible. That is just insane odds. And I think that when you look at him and you look at all these other people out there, that have similar numbers like Ray Dalio. I think he's only had what two or three down years in like 35 years of, of trading or something like that. It's totally crazy. It's totally nuts. So the fact that you have so many people that are doing this, I think just absolutely shatters the idea that the efficient market hypothesis is a real model that works or that, that represents what's happening uh, in real terms. I, I just don't see that to be the truth. So let's keep talking about uh, Edward Thorpe. So Edward Thorpe was probably one of the more interesting people that they talked about in the book. And the, the reason I felt that way is just because of the way that they started off talking about him. So um, Edward Thorpe is just a mathematical genius. He is a statistics guru. And so he kind of got his start um, by really dispelling some of the uh, ideas that you can't beat casino odds. And so he took it upon himself to try to mathematically prove that certain games, blackjack and surprisingly roulette, um, he felt that he had a formula that he could beat the casino in those two games. So with blackjack, he is the guy who developed the idea of counting cards. Uh, there was a movie. What was the name of the movie that they had the MIT students go out to Vegas? Do you know the name of that? Stig? Yeah, I think it was uh, was it twenty one? The one with Kevin 20, Spacey. Yeah, yeah. twenty one with Kevin Spacey. So that uh, method for beating uh, blackjack was Edward Thorpe, who wrote this book. And uh, the name of the book was uh, let me see here. I have my notes. Uh, Beat the dealer was the name of the book. Edward Thorpe came up with that strategy. So in addition to that, uh, Edward Thorpe thought that he could beat roulette. And so I'm reading this book and I'm like, how in the world could you beat roulette? Like that is just so um, mathematically improbable. I want to say the odds are something like around 47% for you to win. Uh, if you're just playing like the blacks and the reds because of the the green element on the roulette wheel for anybody that's familiar with roulette. But Edward Thorpe had a different opinion. So he uh, the way he did this and they talk about it in this book, it's it's fascinating. The interview, he talks about the idea that if he could figure out the velocity of the ball spinning around the wheel, if he knew how fast that ball was going, he could maybe and he this was his theory. He could maybe determine uh, where the ball would land on and on which number. So what he did <laughs> This is amazing. What he did is he put a device in his shoe that he could click with his foot. And what he was doing is he was timing the velocity of the ball going around the roulette wheel. So let's just say he was using the green mark on the wheel as like a uh, a point that he could mark against the ball as it was rolling in the opposite direction. So he would mark it when it passed it the first time. And then when it passed it the second time, he'd click the button a second time. And then I think it was maybe a secondary person. I can't remember how how it went exactly, but there was a secondary person that knew the velocity and the probability of where that ball and the number that that ball was going to land on. And then they would place their bets. Um, And he says that in this book, he says that he was able to prove it out. He was able to implement this strategy successfully. And uh, the rest is history. So this is the kind of guy that you're dealing with. And this is also the same guy that beat the market 227 months out of 230 uh, with his strategy. And if I remember right, he was doing it through options. Um, he was basically an options expert, and he was implementing options strategies that were just beating the pulp out of the market. 
So that was an amazing story in this book. Um, I would argue that the book was worth buying just for that story alone uh, where he discussed Edward Thorpe. Yeah, and uh, I think his humor was was fantastic because he was saying, I can't understand why the casinos are so mad at me. Yes, there might be a few that could use my system and the casinos will lose a bit of money. But he was saying, there are so many people coming to Vegas and think they can beat the house now because I told people that they can't do that. And the casinos are making much more money out of that than they're losing to someone like me. So uh, (laughs) I just like that uh, analogy that he was having. (laughs) Now, this was a good story. All right. So let's go on to, uh, and we're just so you guys know, we're in the second part of the segment where we're talking about a few of the people that we really liked in the book. So the next one we're going to talk about is Ray Dalio. So I want to come clean because whenever we first did the Tony Robbins book, uh, this was on episode 18 where we uh, talked about Tony Robbins' new book called Money. He um, talked about Ray Dalio till he was blue in the face. And now I feel like I'm the person who's talking about Ray Dalio till I'm blue in the face. And the main reason why is, you know, if you remember back to that episode, Stig and I were really kind of beating Tony Robbins up and Ray Dalio up because of the fact that he said that he would invest in gold. Um, He said that at the time, what was it? 7.5% of the portfolio should be in gold. Is that what he said? So for me, I'm, I'm, you know... (laughs) I hate eating crow and going back on anything that I say. But at the same time, I I feel like I have a deep obligation to be honest with people here and and tell you uh, kind of the way that Stig and I have been looking at things. So ever since that interview, whenever uh, Ray Dalio, this gentleman who has a net worth, personal net worth of $16 billion, he manages the biggest hedge fund in the entire planet, uh, said that he would have 7.5% of his portfolio in gold. I did not understand that for the life of me. I was like, why in the world would this guy be saying that? I mean, for the last, what would it be, five months, I have been researching the living daylights out of Ray Dalio and trying to read every single thing I can get my hands on with this guy to try to understand why he had that opinion. And I feel like I totally understand his opinion now. Um, And it really comes down to the fact that Ray Dalio got his start as a commodities and currency trader. And so Ray Dalio understands currencies. He understands commodities very well. And he started this company called Bridgewater, which we've talked about a lot. We've told people about the video that he made. And uh, his company currently has $120 billion in assets that they manage, um, which is just unprecedented. And what's even more unprecedented is his performance. Okay, so when we talk about Ray Dalio's performance, let me give you a a few stats here so you kind of understand the magnitude of his performance. So he has a fund, and it's called the Alpha Fund, and this fund tries to perform at 18% annually is what this fund tries to do. Uh, In 2008, when the market was down 50%, his fund returned 8.7% in the green. Okay, so that that's like beating the market by like 60 to 70%, depending on which uh, index you're using. Uh, in 2010, okay, just after, you know, everything had the total meltdown, he had a 44.8% return. That's totally insane. In 2011, when the market was down um, uh, a little bit that year, he was like up in the 30 or 40% range, okay? So his returns are totally astronomical. So his approach is so much different than Warren Buffett. So Warren Buffett is a micro guy. He He's looking at the individual companies. He's trying to find companies that are undervalued when you're comparing it to a 10-year treasury. Um, but Dalio, what he's doing is he's looking at the macro picture. He is a macro trader uh, and I'm going to try to explain his investing approach uh, a lot better for people so that they understand this. So um, the first thing you got to understand with Ray Dalio's approach is that he breaks things down into four different quadrants and he uses two different things to determine that. The first thing that he looks out is inflation for whatever particular country that he invests in. And just so people know, his fund is completely computer managed. He is not picking the companies like Warren Buffett is. He has a computer algorithm that is picking stocks completely hands off. And this thing is, is making the selections for him. Uh, and in the interview that, that in this book, he talks about that. And he talks about how 99% of all of his trades are done by a computer. I find that absolutely fascinating. 
Uh, But anyway, going back to his approach and how he's doing this. So what he does is he looks across the world. He's not just looking at the U.S. He's looking at all markets across the world, and he's distributing all of his picks in all these different markets to mitigate his risk. So we were talking about probabilities earlier. This is where Ray Dalio comes in. So he has just countless thousands of different picks. Now, they're nested inside of ETFs and other um, vehicles. So he's distributing that across many different platforms. I mean, he's he's not completely in equities. In fact, a lot of his money is not in equities. And I think that that's something that's amazing. So back to this quadrant. So the first variable that he's looking at is inflation. Is inflation rising or is inflation decreasing? Then the other variable that he's looking at is, is the economy, GDP, is it growing or is it slowing? Okay, and whenever you have these these two variables, you're able to break things into a four piece quadrant. So um, let me give you an example. If he finds an economy in the world that it has a rising inflation and a growing uh, GDP, that is in one of the four quadrants. So the opposite of that quadrant would be a slowing GDP and a decreasing inflation or uh, deflation occurring. That's a different quadrant. Um, then you could have uh, on the on the opposite sides of those quadrants would be an accelerating growth, but a declining inflation. So whenever he looks at these different quadrants, he has different asset classes that he's willing to invest in each one of these quadrants. So let me give you an example. If he finds an economy that has a rising inflation and growing GDP, uh, think China. Okay, that's a quadrant that he would be comfortable investing in emerging equities. He'd be uh, interested in investing in emerging bond spreads, things like that. There's different asset classes in that quadrant that he's willing to buy. As the economy, let's say we're talking about China here. Let's say that their inflation starts to slow and their growth, their GDP growth starts to slow. As that magnitude decreases, he he automatically starts moving into a more cash position. Okay, so I'm just providing a brief example of how he's doing this, but it's a very dynamic approach and he's using inflation and growth in order to determine which asset class he needs to be in. Now, I could go on uh, more details, but I think over audio and as you guys are listening to it, it's going to be a little bit hard for people to follow. And it's probably something that you need to read and kind of uh, absorb yourself. We're talking about this a little bit on our forum on the warrenbuffettforum.com. Uh, you go in there, maybe search for some of the different results where I've been talking about Dalio. And I've also uh, provided some links to some of the different documents where I'm uh, learning more about uh, Ray's approach. But Absolutely fascinating. Uh, I think one of the the biggest highlights that we can talk about that occurred during this interview is Ray Dalio had the quote. He says, diversification is the holy grail of investing. And I totally agree with him because you are limiting your downside. You are distributing your risk. My personal opinion, but based on the performance that I've seen, the, the approach that he has, I think this person is probably the rising star that everyone needs to watch. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient dot com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. 
If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Yeah, one of the things that impressed me with uh, Redalio was that he was talking about these rules because I think that if you read the book, you might be thinking, well, I just need Redalio's computer program. If I had this program, I could also beat the market the same way as he's doing. But what he's talking about is that he has some rules. And as Preston said, more than 99% of his uh, stocks, for instance, they are picked by a computer. But he keeps changing the rules. And let just let me give you uh, one example. Well, he keeps updating the rules. I think yeah. that may be a, be a better way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Keep updating rules. And let me just give an example of that. Because when he's, for instance, looking at UK, uh, and he gave an example about oil prices. So when he's looking at UK that has been an oil importer, for a long time, and now it's an oil exporter after they found a lot of uh, oil in the North Sea. That means that he needs to update his rules. So this is not uh, a static program. As president is saying, this is very dynamic. So it's very dynamic because he has to account for a lot of different events, but based on those events, he is updating his rule rules that are basically beating the market. He's not looking at the individual company and saying, I want to concentrate my my uh, portfolio on this type of security. He's saying this bundle of securities are really interesting because this, this, and this. And now I'm buying the diversified performance of that bundle. Um, and I, I was just, I found that's really, really interesting. Uh, and really, perhaps it's, it's, that was probably the time that makes sense to me because um, also to give a shout out for the, for the book, the Tony Robbins book that, that Preston was mentioning before, I think the problem uh, was really also um, confused us was that it was kind of like a formula, like you should always have 20% long-term bonds. And that system just didn't make any sense to me. But I, I, I want to say I'm a believer now. <laughs> Perhaps not as much as Preston, but it makes sense to me now why he is beating the market. Well, and I think that the, and this is no dig against Tony Robbins, because I have a lot of respect for what Tony Robbins does, but I think that his book definitely comes across that way, like, hey, this is what Ray Dalio said, and you should always have 7.5% in gold, which is not what Ray Dalio is saying at all. And I think that's where the disconnect, and I think that was one of the reasons why we didn't like it when we read it, is because that's how we read it, was, hey, this is this is fixed, this is what it is. Um, and that's not his approach at all. Um, whenever you look at the way that Ray Dalio has everything structured, it is just amazing. And what he's doing is when I'm talking about those quadrants, how he has uh, a quadrant for rising GDP and rising inflation. So that makes up 25% of his portfolio is he is looking for economies around the world that fit that criteria. And at the same time, he's looking for economies that have the negative inflation and decreasing GDP. He's trying to put 25% of his portfolio into that quadrant. So as the world is constantly changing and this dynamics is constantly changing, he is constantly adjusting the allocation of his assets in each one of those different quadrants. So absolutely fascinating. I'm sure Stig and I will be talking about some of this stuff as through future episodes. We will definitely be more than happy to talk to people about this on our forum. So if you've got more questions, ask them over there. So the last person we're going to talk about, uh, and then we'll wrap up this episode, was uh, Jewel Greenblatt, which uh, we've got enormous respect for Jewel Greenblatt. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Jewel Greenblatt uh, came up with a thing called the magic formula. 
Uh, Joel also wrote the book, The Little Book That Beats the Market. And he also uh, wrote the book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. I think that if anybody's really trying to look at his approach and how he uh, invests, those are probably the two best places to start. I think you'll probably get uh, a more profound overview of how he does it in those books than you would in this interview. Uh, And in this interview, they really kind of talk more about his uh, philanthropic uh, adventures with uh, his education. He's trying to reform the, the education system. Absolutely awesome read. I really enjoyed reading about that. And I'll tell you, he's really cracking the code on it. That's that's what I took away from it, at least. Um, And I think that it was a really valuable um, discussion. And I think that if you're interested in philanthropy, I think that this is probably a fantastic thing to, to look at and see the impact that he's making. So, you know, I think that the uh, Greg Greenblatt uh, chapter was really good because I learned a lot from that because Jim Greenblatt, he's really influenced by Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett's uh, approach to investing. But I also found the difference between Greenblatt um, and Redelli really interesting because what Greenblatt is saying is that you really don't have to update your rules. Now, he is saying that if you follow the magic formula, just really, really short, he's looking at cheap companies and, and high quality companies. Um, using two different metrics. If you are just following that formula, then you will beat the market. So it was a, it was kind of a different approach than um, than Redalio. And even though that Joe Greenblatt, if you really know him, he has come with a few updates and a bit tweaks and and, and tweaks. Um, I I think that was really interesting that following rules, updating or not, you can actually beat the market. I mean, at least that was his thesis. So, um, you know, I, I got to ask you, Preston, because I thought a lot about this. Do you think that you can beat the market simply by following a simple formula? Do you think that's the way to go for a lot of investors? I mean, if you if you look at Toby's book, um, Toby Carlisle, who's in our mastermind, I, I would say yes. <laughs> I mean, he he pretty much shows it through backtesting. And I know a lot of people get a little uh of uh, concern when you say the word backtesting, but I mean, he throws Joel Greenblatt's magic formula up against, uh, you know, his recommendation, which is the acquires uh, multiple. And, um, you know, I, yes, I do think that you can. I think that it's really important that if you would try to go down that route, you have to be consistent. You can't do it for five years. And then whenever you get taken to the cleaners because the market's down, uh, that you move into a different strategy and think that you're going to have good results. Yeah, because I think it was actually in Greenblatt's uh, section when he was talking about this, uh, the last decade, the 2000s. And he was saying that uh, the average investor in the best mutual fund actually made a loss, uh, whereas um, the the fund did something like 80%. Now now that I think about it, it might be actually in the little book, The Pizza Market. I might (laughs) interchange those two. But as Preston was saying, if if you're not persistent doing a formula trade that that really doesn't make any sense and and all of this that toby is doing and jim greenblatt is doing i think it's perfectly fine but you have to remember that they're looking at really long time spans and a lot of investors that jump back back and forth you know into the into the market and if you do that then formal investing is probably not for you okay so uh i think we've talked enough about the book i think you guys got an idea of uh how complex and how much stuff's in it but what we're going to do right now is we're going to go to a question from our audience So our question comes from Jonathan Brasso, and here's his question. Hey, Preston and Stig. Love the show. This is Jonathan Brasso, and my question is, how do you stay grounded in your value investing principles when all these different macroeconomic factors and uh, other outside information is constantly creeping in? Thanks. Yeah, the first thing I want to say is that it's really the depends on what you, which kind of security you are, you're looking at. So, for instance, if you're looking at one stock, um, I think it would be wrong to say something like, because the debt in Japan is sky high, then something should happen to that single security. Again, given that it's not heavily exposed to, to Japan. And, and that's also why when, when Preston and I were talking about that the stock market in general is overvalued, that's because we are you know, speaking to a lot of people and a lot of people have a lot of different stocks. I mean, if I would be speaking to, to Preston specifically about my own portfolio, then we might pay more attention to that security and less attention to the macro situation. So, I mean, that's, that's, that, I just want to say that's very different. And then 
For instance, if you're looking at something like a bond, which is just very different than a stock, then macro might be more relevant for you. It might be more relevant to look at the interest rates. It's extremely relevant to look at the interest rates. And since you're talking about a loan, a bond is basically a loan, yes, the debt situation for a country might be a genuine you know, problem for you, a general concern for you. But clearly, when you manage your own portfolio with individual securities, which I think a lot of people are doing, it doesn't matter if the debt in France is high or not. This is just not, not the, the right way to look at it. So I would say that you need to identify which macroeconomic indicators are important to your portfolio and the way that you invest. And I think that's probably also why you would see Warren Buffett pay much less attention to this than, than Redalio. That's that's not because you know one is smarter than the other. That's because it's more relevant for Redalio to look at this. And while it's more relevant for, for Warren Buffett to look at the macro factors. Yeah, and I think whenever you look at their two approaches, they're just really different. I, uh, Warren Buffett is a hardcore equity and bond guy in the United States. That's where he has really focused a lot of his, his attention, where Dalio is really much more of a world investor. Um, so the approaches aren't the same. And, you know, at the end of the day, Buffett has had, uh, what is it, what's his return, like 19.6% average yeah. return uh, since his inception of, of Berkshire Hathaway. So um, at the end of the day, Buffett's returns, they're better than Dalio's, okay, so far. And, you know, Buffett's a micro guy. But the best way to ground yourself is to study, 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 be a learning machine. You know, if you have a long drive to work, you should be knocking out a book a week, you know, and if it's in something that you really have a vested interest with it, whether it's investing or whatever your your interest is, um, put that focus and put that effort into what that thing is that you're really trying to understand. And that's truly how you ground yourself because you're going to, the truth is going to emerge the more that you study and learn it. So uh, that's, that's the best advice I can give you. But okay. So that's all we have for you guys this week. Uh, we really enjoyed the question from Jonathan. Thank you for submitting that. Uh, Stig and I will send you a free signed copy of our book, the Warren Buffett accounting book. Um, and for anybody else out there, if you've got a question, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. Uh, also, head over to our forum, the warrenbuffettforum.com. And um, if you have any questions or you want to bring up any points that we discussed during this episode, you can do it there. And uh, Stig and I hang out there all the time. So um, we'd be, love to have you over there. And feel free to sign up on our uh, mailing list if you'd like to get our executive summary of any of our books. Uh, for this book that we just did, The Hedge Fund Market Wizards, uh, we type up an executive summary. It is like four pages long. Uh, we will send that off to you guys and then you can read through. And if you want to see more finer points of any of the people that we discussed, you can get that in our executive summary. We send that out for free. We don't send out any spam. We hate spam. So sign up on our list at theinvestorspodcast.com and you can get our free executive summaries. So uh, we really appreciate everyone joining us and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.